0: The babe. What's babe. The babe the power. What's the power? power of voodoo. And <laughs> you do. And my name is the babe.
1: Had a little bit of technical difficulties there, but we are live, ladies and gentlemen. This is the Rattledge and Broadcasting Network presentation of a tribute to the life and times of David Bowie. I am your host, the mandated reporter, and frankly, I'm mortified, Mr. Mark Rattledge. <clears throat> and I'm happy to be doing this show tonight. Sad that David Bowie has passed away at the age of, I believe, 69 from cancer, but we here at the RIB we we celebrate life. We don't we don't mourn, we celebrate. We are we are here to uh look back at a great musician, hear some of his music, tell some stories and share our love of David Bowie. And I am of course not alone because who the hell wants to listen to me talk for an hour uh by myself? I am joined by someone who's not here at gunpoint. <laughs>
2: Uh, Not
0: tonight, at least. Come a little closer. I, I know. It's uncomfortable. Well. Oh, here, I'll turn it this way.
1: Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, a bigger fan of David Bowie than, than I, a lifelong fan of David Bowie, Bowie, David Bowie, and somebody who I can rarely get on a podcast, so this is extra special. This is Twilight time, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, the lovely Mrs. Melissa Radulich. How do you do, madam? I'm okay. Excellent. And joining us, of course, uh, is the pugilant, punchy boxer from New Jersey. He'll punch you in the eye and he'll tell you to go make him a sandwich. There he is, folks. Wrestling historian extraordinaire, Mr. Pat Mullen. How do you do, sir? I just want to
3: make it clear you know, I'm not punching, nothing. I got what you might call a relaxed brain, but. <laughs> <laughs> you, you do have a relaxed brain, I'll give you that, sir.
1: Um, good to have you on, Pat. Thank you. I'm ready to put on my red shoes and dance a little bit of the blues. Excellent. We've got about 11 or so songs here that we're going to listen to tonight. Um, and like I said, we're going to play at Lucy Goosey and just um, play some songs, tell some stories, share our love of Mr. David Bowie. I want to go over to um, Melissa in just a moment, but I know for myself... I didn't own any of his albums. Um, my attachment to David Bowie came through uh, going dancing. I don't know if people know this, but you know, in addition to being a wrestling fan and a movie enthusiast and all that, I was also quite the dancer back in the day. Um, I used to go clubbing in New York City. And the kinds of places that I would frequent were 80s clubs or goth industrial clubs, and goth industrial clubs tended to also play an 80s set. So most of the time that I spent out dancing was listening to, uh, there was a lot of David Bowie that would get played. More than I realized, as a matter of fact, as I went back through his catalog, oh, that's a David Bowie song? So that was my exposure to David Bowie. Uh, he, He made great songs to dance to. Now Melissa, you're a lifelong fan. You were telling me some stories earlier, which I hope you'll share tonight. What uh, what why David Bowie? What's the attraction?
2: Um, I always kind of had this weird infatuation for the British invasion and the British culture. Um, so much so that at one point in time I actually do think I faked the British accent for a while. Um, but a lot of it came from growing up in a house with a dad who was in rock and roll in the 70s in Europe and, and worked with a lot of these guys. And I can remember hearing stories as a kid. You know, my bedtime stories were rock and rollers and the crazy things that they did on the road. And um, for some reason, David Bowie, especially when I hit about 12 or 13 years old, 14 years old, really started to kind of speak to to me in that I don't know, I guess that weird adolescent time you feel like you don't fit in anywhere. So, um, you know, it just kind of evolved from my love of all things British and
1: now folks, she not only apparently uh once yes. faked a British accent, but she also told me about the bougie teacher that she works with <laughs> after working in a black school for a few years. I
2: don't understand why bougie is <laughs> a black word, Considering that all of my very white southern affluent girlfriends use the word bougie to describe themselves. I don't understand. Welcome to
3: another edition of Assimilation Nation.
1: <laughs> yeah, take it easy, homie. Um, okay. we'll, we'll come back to you. I think
2: it's a northern thing. I do. I think y'all have... I don't know. Y'all. Shut up. <laughs> All
1: right. Um, we'll, we'll come back to the Auntie Bella moment in just a moment. But uh, Pat... Now um even I don't really connect on music. Uh you said earlier you don't really listen to the uh the Thursday night delight that is the metal hammer of doom it's uh, a little too heavy for you. Yay. Oh. <laughs> Quiet you. <laughs>
0: um
1: so well your music taste what what do you listen to and where does David Bowie fit into that? I'm I'm legitimately really all
3: over the place. Like I, I, a few guys I've listened to you've covered bands like Clutch. Um but but at the same token, I can listen to Clutch for ten, for you know a while, and then immediately after, I can throw on some Stevie Ray Vaughan, or I can go Motown. I, I just love music in general, and you know I don't have a a super taste preference for a genre. But um, Bowie's always just been really—he's just had something about him, and I think Melissa touched on it a little bit. Not just because he's British, but he's one of those just people who is always cool, and you can't t- ever teach cool. You just have it or you don't, and. The guy found a way to remain not just relevant, but at the forefront of music movements for close to four decades. So there's a lot going on there. But my first exposure to Bowie had nothing to do with music. First time I saw him was in the movie Labyrinth, and we heard, you know, magic dance to start the show. And before I knew anything about this guy, I knew him as Jarrett the
1: Goblin King. I wouldn't say that's right for me, too. Um, As I said... I knew I might have known a lot of David Bowie's music without knowing it was David Bowie, which is typical for me, uh, where I would hear songs and not necessarily con- connect them to an artist. But I think the first time I ever saw David Bowie and recognized him as a musical performer was in the movie Labyrinth. which is partially why I started the show with Magic Dan, because I think if there is one, you know, people have their uh, time period of David Bowie that they that they like that they prefer whether it's the Ziggy Stardust period, or what do you call him, the White Knight? The White Duke. The White Duke. You know, or later on. And for me, he'll always be, as you said, Jared the Godless King with his huge God piece.
2: Do you know what's funny about that, though? Because I was saying, so I don't know. I, I know how old you are, right? But I don't know how old everybody is. But I'm probably the youngest of you guys. And that is not my first memory of him. And this is where I think background comes so heavily into play. Mm-hmm. Because I grew up, you know, my bedtime music was these great rockers of the 60s and 70s. So, you know, for me growing up, I knew David Bowie as David Bowie before I ever knew him as the Labyrinth King. In fact, I probably didn't even see Labyrinth until I was uh, 10 years old.
1: Right. So let's get into, we got some music to play here. got a lot of music to get through. And for people listening tonight... Uh, as I said, the celebration of his career, but it is not a career retrospective where you know we start at the beginning and work our way all the way to the end. I picked literally eleven songs to play that uh, I knew and knew were popular uh, songs that I like that I like to talk about and listen to. Um, at my wife and I read the list to Melissa. She said, "Oh, you picked a lot of the the, the, the thin Oreo cookie period. <laughs> what was it again?
0: No, you. The of Shigeru- dream. dream. Yeah. Yeah."
1: Uh, <laughs> And and I did that by accident. I just went, oh, I like these songs. This is what we're listening to tonight. So um, let's go right into uh, an old favorite of mine, uh, probably the song I heard the most when I would put on my dancing shoes. This is Let's Dance. the whole song for the legal reasons. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so there's a snippet. Um, people listening to the Metal Hammer of Doom know that we uh, we only play about a minute of the song. But that um, it, it brings back a lot of memories for me. Uh, like I said, uh, going to certain clubs in New York City and uh, hearing that that was always a crowd pleaser. You know, if the dance floor got a little light, that one always brought out the girls um it would bring out the crowd and uh, and people would people would start to dance and everything and have a good time um so as i said earlier david bowie uh passed away from uh from cancer at 69 um we learned about this today so what was your first feeling when you saw that on the news this
2: morning I was actually really devastated. I've had a rough weekend um, when it comes to finding out about losing people in your life. Um found out that a very close friend of mine growing up father died uh, this week. So for me, it was kind of fuel to the fire. But it was really hard to hear because, you know, I actually said to my mom today, I was like, this is like a beetle dying for me. Um, and with me, that's a huge thing. I, I, as I said, I really, you know, have this deep-seated love. Um so it was really tough to hear and it was one of those where um you get a little sad because you know there's not gonna be that music anymore and the new stuff coming out of him and it kinda made me really want to like make Lillian Jonas watch The Labyrinth and listen to David Bowie songs that I I think it's a very good point. Um I think
1: one might describe David Bowie uh on the one hand, at least in appearance, especially in his early stuff, as avant garde uh i and I don't know if I think he was very very unique, and well, someone might have heard that last song of some of the other ones we we'll hear tonight is, as though that's that's pop that's that's okay that's that's mainstream that's like that, that's easily digestible for the average person. I don't think we'll ever have another David Bowie type again uh in the music world i just uh and i'm I'm not really whining about that it's just sort of an observation it, it I think I think it was was it Everclear or not Everclear. It was um Oasis who said, Why can't we be the Beatles? And it's, you know part of that is time and place. Uh David Bowie came or, when David Bowie came onto the music scene and broke through with the, the life and times of Ziggy Startups or otherwise and fall Ziggy Startups, whatever it was called. Um, he was doing something very new with with, with music. And I don't know what else is left to be sort of explored, and what new ground there is to break. I guess when it happens, we'll know. Uh, but when you think about people who are hitting the top of the charts now and doing some amazing things, if they're singer-songwriters, but it, it's it's they've just got amazing voices, but they're not really no, they have I mean, great
2: electronics.
1: Oh, they have great electronics, <laughs> but they're not new, necessarily breaking new ground musically. Um, want to throw in here, Pat, your thoughts about uh, him passing this morning or uh, his contribution to the music world, that sort of thing?
3: The first thing I did was I called my mom because my mom is the biggest David Bowie fan I know. Uh, you're talking about a girl who grew up, you know, born in the mid-60s and really had her formative time in the 70s when it came to music, and David Bowie, especially seeing him as Ziggy Stardust was like a, a, an awakening for her as to things, and She just was a lifelong David Bowie fan. And so I called mom to see how she was doing uh, because the day Lemmy died, she gave me a phone call as soon as she heard because it had that kind of similar effect on me. Um, But musically, he was really a chameleon because he could do so many things with so many genres. You you talked about Let's Dance and it being a very pop radio friendly song, but Bowie had, he, he just crossed over everywhere and had so many influences uh, in his really, really formative years where he would go from blues and experiment with a more uh, hard rock sound at certain points. like, uh, And he could see things coming ahead. When he formed Tin Machine in the late 80s, that was really the forerunner to your more Seattle-oriented grunge rock. Now, Bowie at the time was in the really worst point of his drug addiction and creatively very stifled, and so he started that off, but and it wasn't very good but it's almost like they saw what he was doing and capitalized on it and took the parts that were broken of it and made it mass acceptable so that they could make money on it. And he's always make. done it he, and god
1: no saying make
3: money he did. Yeah. And th- to to me the first Bowie album I got into musically and I bought was uh his album Earthling which came out in the late 90s because there was a single on there he did with 9-inch Nails called I'm Afraid of Americans. And that's,
2: <laughs> we were talking about just, that earlier.
3: <laughs> yeah. It, it was so weird that, like, you can have this guy who goes from Major Tom to Let's Dance to Fame and have the Halloween Jack stuff, and he goes into this heavy industrial sound, and it's awesome. And, I, I, like, I got hooked on that song and listened to the whole album, and I was like, man, this is kind of heavy, but it's cool. And my mom comes in, she's like, is that David Goey when I first bought the album? I'm like, yeah, you know him? And, you know, that's (laughs) when she basically handed me copies of, you know, Let's Dance and Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars and uh, Diamond Dogs and all these things. And I was like, wow, this guy's all over the place, but it's awesome. And you find out he was a guy who gave people like Stevie Stevie Ray Vaughan and Iggy Pop their first real exposure. You can't really differentiate genres more than those two guys and then go to Trent Reznor, but he did,
1: and did it seamlessly. let play another song here. I want to keep going with what Pat sang, but let's play another song, and we'll come back to the conversation. Speaking of uh, someone's rising popularity, this is Fame.
2: Actually, my favorite little thing about that song, you know who you did backup vocals? Who did backup vocals? Sean Lennon. Ah, it all comes together. Yes.
1: I am always amazed by an artist's ability to stay ahead of the trends, but also uh, create music that is an expression of his time, uh, the present time in the music industry, without becoming pretentious. Um or doing something that, that was so supposed to be timely, but because of whatever the issues are in production, missing that time period. I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. A Guns N' Roses, when they put out uh, Chinese Democracy, was about 10 years too late. <laughs> it was this big industrial-sounding record at, well after industrial had arisen and fallen in the mainstream, and it just sounded way out of date and... and um, this was just terrible. This <laughs> was a terrible record. What? A Chinese Democracy
3: by uh, Guns well, N' Roses. That's also what happens when you record an album and then mix it over 10
1: years. Yeah, exactly. You sort of miss the boat. But uh, I don't think Bowie ever did that. I think Bowie was always able to sort of juggle um, musical trends while, again, staying ahead of music and, tra- and being able to experiment and try new things.
2: But I think part of that is because he collaborated well. I mean, this is amazing. Like, yeah, he is extremely talented, but he was always that person who kind of figured out who was going to be a great collaborator, and he really caught out. Mick Jagger, notwithstanding.
1: What did he say? Mick Jagger,
2: notwithstanding. <laughs> well, there's a whole other side to that.
1: Oh well, talk talk about that. I don't. Well, I, don't I mean, there why.
2: is always the thing about um, sexuality in David Bowie, and and actually one of his apparent. Male love interest was Mick Jagger.
1: Um, Did Mick Jagger return the favor?
2: Well, okay, so (laughs) we all know, oh, I'm not. But so my father in the 70s. Was also in love with David Bowie? No, was a roadie in Europe. And so one of the cool things growing up is that I, you know, my dad had these stories of these people in the 70s and the things that he had to do and the jobs he did. And, you know, pretty much anybody big in the 70s um, in Europe or, you know, in, or touring in Europe, my dad worked for, I mean, my dad worked for Paul McCartney. He worked for George, you know, everyone. Um, but he actually one night had to, uh, babysit David Bowie and, and Mick Jagger at a concert. And, um, David Bowie was there with Angie and Mick Jagger. And there was lots of very inappropriate things happening and, and, fondling of, of each other and this was on by like all three of them so um you know <laughs> it is what it
1: is okay
2: <laughs> and, and if you've ever not. seen the
3: dancing in the streets music video that basically just gives you a visual on everything
2: yeah pretty much pretty much
1: okay so uh you know some strange bed- bedfellows sometimes makes for some very interesting music definitely uh, <clears throat> anything before we go on to our next song well, you know, we were
3: talking about how he was always able to not do something that sounded like it came out 10 years too late, but that's part of his genius. The the album I talked about, Earthling, songs on that were recorded for an album he had done before that called Outside, but rather than reissue those songs, what he did was he listened to them, saw the changes in the music industry between, you know, 1993 and 1997, which were significant, and goes, this song's okay, but it needs to be reworked if it's going to be anything viable and hit at the time and still keep any artistic uh, integrity. And that's what separates a guy like him from the last effort from Guns N' Roses and a lot of other people in that same boat. And, you know, it, it shows how creative he can be, where some people can overstate what they're doing and just go in a direction where nobody comprehends it, but David, like Melissa pointed out, always had generally people around him who he could trust and work with and could n- keep that creativity in check and make it something that people love, like Niall Rogers, who's a very famous producer who Bowie worked with a lot, and a, a few other people. But he was, he was smart enough to know he couldn't do it all himself. And that's what kept him relevant so long in so many ways.
1: You know, it's funny. Um, I want to play another song here, but uh, so I'll keep this really short. My uh, my, when it comes to stuff I know details about, I I tend to know more details about film than um, than anything else. And uh, you know, we're talking about collaborating with other people, and that creating a stronger stronger pieces of art than uh, living in a bubble and trying to do it yourself. And I just think, like, well, that pretty much sums up George Lucas. You know, you have you have all these great directors who are willing to uh, collaborate with other people and take in great ideas and Uh, And they they give us these really wonderful movies, and then you have someone like George Lucas who uh, trapped himself in a bubble, sought out no other collaborators, and then gave us the prequels. Um, And and this is not a dissertation on that, but I I think musically, that's sort of what I'm thinking about, is how you you, you have your George Lucas types, and then you have those kinds of problems, where they create dated material, they create material that no one's connecting with, um, because essentially they're, they're just... They're they're giving. They're expressing themselves without any other way of connecting that material to other people. If you understand what I'm trying to say, Uh, this next one, number three in our hit parade, this is "China Girl." one of the ones you wanted to hear tonight tell me about it okay so the amazing thing about
3: that song is a lot of people don't know that it's a cover and it was originally recorded by david's good friend iggy pop and it had a much different sound to it than that uh if you've never heard it imagine an alley cat that sees another alley cat and they're trying to fight over the same piece of rotten fish that somebody threw out and they're just (laughs) wailing at the top of their lungs with a much less harmonic and melodic beat to it, especially without the Asian influence that was thrown in at the beginning. Um, But that just shows you how how cool and how smart David is that he could take that, rework it, and make it into one of his biggest hits of the entire decade of the 80s where it, it would play in constantly remixed versions at dance clubs and it was all over the place. The video you couldn't miss on MTV or NBC's Friday Night Videos and, it, it, again, we talked about him being a musical chameleon. Take a cover of something by the Stooges, who are one of the most influential punk groups of all time, and you make it to commercially viable 80s dance pop. It's, it's absurd. And the fact that his is so much
1: more well-known than theirs just shows how big he made it. Yeah, Anthony actually had that with a song by a band called Trust, um, which is in French, the original. You might know it now because it, it ended up in, I think, Rock uh, Guitar Hero 4. But um, people for the longest time thought Antisocial was an anthrax song. Same thing with I Believe It's All on the Watchtower by Jimi Hendrix was actually Bob Bob Dylan. Yep, And Bob Dylan liked Hendrix's version so much he was like, it's yours. (laughs) 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 I am am signing over my baby to you. Uh, As that song was playing and you were talking about the video, Melissa whispered over to me. She said, uh, Don't creep me out. out. So tell me
2: about the video and why, life. It you. It was it, there was the the woman, the Chinese woman, and like the way she she had the. What I distinctly can remember is her wearing the very long, pointy gold fingernails. And you yep. gotta remember like, this. We fingernails. No, like no, like like Asian, I, I, yeah, but they're not real. They're like metal caps that you put over your finger, and they're part of. So Asian culture, more like like a like a
1: superhero kind of thing.
2: No, like, it, it literally it goes on your. Screen. Okay, think Michelle Pfeiffer in, not yeah no. Well, who was the Catwoman? Yeah, it was Michelle Pfeiffer. Yes, when she was doing her Catwoman costume, and she put the little things over her fingers to be the yeah. cat those, but
0: gold. Okay. Okay.
2: And it just, let's was the china the wearing.
1: Was the china woman also wearing a raincoat that was sort of sewn together? No,
2: the, she wasn't. But like, I also was young when this came out. So it just, it always kind of creeps me out a little bit. But this, that song, really, to me, is quintessential 80s. Like, when I think 80s music, like, China Girl is one of those songs that kind of sticks in your brain. I'm like, yeah, this is the 80s.
1: I'm going to say this to Pat, for past benefit and Pat's benefit only. When I heard the opening, um, not really a guitar lick, but when I heard that opening ode to the uh, Asian culture there, first thought I, first I it was, oh, this sounds like Hakuchi coming out to the ring. <laughs> it's very close, and
3: um, but yeah, I remember too that, that that song was released at a time, "China Girl," when a lot of Asian culture was making its way into the United States in mass. And I, as somebody who lived in Brooklyn's version of Chinatown at the time, or at least what became Chinatown in Brooklyn, um, that was pretty relevant too historically at the time because we had a ton of uh chinese-owned businesses korean-owned businesses japanese-owned businesses coming in and not even just in brooklyn but in the united states you had the japanese taking over a ton of us-owned businesses so it, it's again it uh, shows the genius of the guy where he took that song not only and just reworked it and made it a pop hit but that
1: it's timely relevant and people would pay attention to it just because of that indeed now i'm going to move into one of my favorite uh David Bowie period separate from <laughs> uh his dance hall fame this is where we start to get into the uh, the sci-fi character aspect of David Bowie his Ziggy Stardust period and that's what we're going to start with right now this here is Ziggy Stardust
0: yeah <laughs> He played guitar, Jamming good, we wear them gaily, and the spiders from Mars. He played in left hand, but made it too far. Became came the special man but then we were Digger's band. Digger really sang. Screwed up eyes and screwed down hairdo Like some cat from Japan He could let come by smiling He could live to They came on so loaded man Welcome to Snow White Pan So where was the fire?
1: modern artist that took a cue from David Bowie and um would rework it and have it to his own repertoire was Marilyn Manson and the curiosity about that. Is <laughs> that really funny? Um, my wife is uh, scared to death of Marilyn Manson. If we're driving, hang on, hang he, on. I have to tell you
2: though, he actually no, wait, wrote hang on. A I'm a gonna...
1: really nice tweet tonight it said about David Bowie. Okay, I'm, I'm gonna give you an opportunity here, but I but first let me let me get to it. See, fine. So, my wife can't be in the car when like the beautiful people she hears the of the beautiful people, she like a cat. <laughs> we'll just just, just run <laughs> out of the car into the clouds. Um, we won't see her again. <laughs> just absolutely scared to death of Marilyn Manson, and you know, and it's funny to me because you, you look at pictures of the Ziggy Stardust character that Bowie created, and he's got the face paint on, and um, you know, he's got that uh the red hair, red hair. And it was clearly created a a rock and roll character. And this didn't bother you as a kid, but
2: Marilyn Manson does Yeah, because he wasn't dark. Okay. Like this wasn't dark. It was colorful and it was pretty and it was very feminine. And then you have Marilyn Manson who just scary It was dark okay. and feminine. Uh, well no, let's, again, let's, no. let's
3: let's let's contrast, we, let's contrast Ziggy Stardust. What was that? Let, let's, contrast, let's contrast Ziggy Stardust with probably the one other person at the time who created and cultivated the character but went to the other end of the spectrum with it and went the dark route, Alice Cooper. And sure. those two go- those two guys at the same time were doing the same concept. They created a character that was a stage persona that, you know, they based their music around. And it was, uh, you know, Mark and I are professional wrestling fans. It was what we were referred to as a gimmick character that they invented that they could use and you know while Bowie kind of went a more experimental melodic androgynous route Cooper went dark and sang about Welcome to My Nightmare and how he loves the dead before they're cold and you know it was two sides of the same coin that went in different directions but it was the same concept that works for both guys I just think Bowie is one of those guys where he got bored with Ziggy Stardust and needed to move on to other stuff and that's when he came up with Halloween Jack, which was the transitional character, and went to the Thin White Duke, and Cooper kind of went into different things. But they also both came up with the idea of doing these concept albums where the songs all banded together to tell a story, where you had Bowie doing Aladdin Sane and Cooper doing Welcome to My Nightmare, and it's stuff that really nobody else has done it that successful of a level. And it's to the point where people thought Major Tom was a Bowie character. He's not. He's the narrative of the story. Just like in Welcome to My Nightmare, Steven is the character who's in the narrative and journeying through these different levels of
1: hell and nightmares. Um, Years later, Trent Reznor's uh, downward spiral would uh, take a cue from this sort of uh, storytelling through an album. Um, The entire downward spiral is supposed to be one long story. Clutch does it as well. Their uh, robot hive exodus is a science fiction story, uh, as is, I believe, um, the gosh, uh, the one before it, um, with the mob goes wild and all that. a so big clutch fan I am, I can't remember the name of the albums anymore. But um, yeah, it is it is interesting. So you don't find Melissa the Ziggy Stardust character to be um, threatening? No. But Alice Cooper, character... I was never
2: an Alice Cooper person, so that one... I don't think it was a threatening thing. I just never got into Alice Cooper. Mm-hmm. Um, but Marilyn Manson was definitely threatening. But again, how old was I when he was hitting it?
1: I don't know, to two? Yeah. But I was
2: young. I mean, I was I was young. And it right. was definitely not my musical taste, especially at that point in my life, because in that point in my life, I lived in the 60s and 70s.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so, yeah, he really bothered me. <laughs> We're gonna, um, but he did write probably one of the nicest tributes I've seen on social media. I'd have to go find it. But just basically talking about how as a kid, like he he helped him to realize that it was okay to be an outsider and to have your own way of doing things and looking at the world and and that we would all find acceptance in, in our individuality. And it was actually I'll go find it um in the next song. But it really you know, in all as much as I do not like Brian Warner, Marilyn Manson, it, it was very, very well
0: written.
1: And I think it's still relevant today. The idea of it's okay to be an outsider and you know be a star, don't be a bully, and all that. Um, though of course, if you spend enough time online, you find that uh, we could, we could use for, we we could use a dose of of uh, being testosterone in a society Just, and man. less individualism. My goodness, <laughs> would you say that testosterone? <laughs> I was going to say civility. Uh, this next song is in every science fiction film ever written. This is Space Oddity.
0: Ground control to Major Tom. Ground Control to Major Tom Take your protein pills and put your helmet on Ground Control to Major Tom Six, down engines on Three, in, and may God love you
1: Every time we lose Matt Damon in face hmm. or, or uh, you know, there's some sort of mission mm-hmm. on ahead. Cool.
2: Or, I say, or anybody spends way too much time on the International Space Station.
1: Yeah, you know, Sandra Bullock is knocked around by a loose satellite. They, you hear this song. It's just, the, you, you cannot now disconnect this song from the science fiction film genre. They are now one and the same. Maybe. Go ahead, Pat. You're starting to react to that. I didn't want to talk over you. No, it, yeah. It's it's the quintessential space song
3: in anything. And even when they go back and show clips of movies that predate the song, they throw the song in. But, it's, <laughs> you know, it's, it's like Space Odyssey 2001 came out four years before that song did, but whenever they show that movie, they somehow find a way to incorporate that song into it in a commercial or a teaser spot. Right. <laughs> You know, um, Bowie always had a thing for space, and I think something, you know, as an actor, everybody points to him in Labyrinth, or his recent cameo in uh, The Prestige as Nikola Tesla. He made a science fiction movie called The Man Who Fell to Earth, based on a novel oh by God, one of my favorite...
2: It's r- movie ever.
3: Yeah. It's based <laughs> it on a novel... Go
2: ahead, Melissa. Oh, I was going to say, it was insane. I mean... I remember begging, my when I was going through my face, I begged to watch this movie. And we actually had to go to Blockbuster and hunt it down. And then I sat and I watched it. And at the end, I literally stood up, looked at my mom and go, I don't understand any of this, and walked out of the room. Yeah. They They
1: probably watched THX for the first time. I don't understand what's happening.
3: (laughs) It's really the same reaction you'll get. And everybody points to Bowie as an actor in that, but they cast him in this movie based on a novel by Walter Tevis, who's one of my favorite writers. He also wrote The Hustler, The Color of Money, a lot of other stuff. And this movie is a much more, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, extravagant performance by Bowie than Labyrinth, which is crazy because he really hams it up in that. But he has to go all over the place in this movie from being this alien who's supposed to save his world by collecting water and he becomes a successful billionaire, but he becomes addicted to alcohol and television. And it's, it's just so bizarre and such a mind trip, especially the first time you see it. And you're, you're just left like, huh? I don't know what I just watched, but he was really good, but I don't, I, I think he was really good, but I don't know where this went.
2: Yep, I I was totally, uh, I mean, I, I, was, I was like 15, I think, when I watched it, but it was definitely when I was things where I'm like, um, I don't know what just happened. And I'm sure this is some deeply artistic thing that I, you know, when I'm older, I, I, if I watch it. I, I deep,
3: compare it you know, to, life. yeah, I compare it to watching a cartoon movie called The Last Unicorn when I watched it after I ate in a mushroom.
2: <laughs> I think that that movie was a mushroom trip, quite frankly.
1: All I remember from The Last Unicorn is the fucking skeleton screaming, the, the,
2: the unicorn! You! you know Lily keeps trying to watch that on Netflix, right? The, the Last Unicorn. And I won't let her. Uh her
1: whole She already has a problem with nightmares. Uh, for those of you keeping score, his in, his in the David Bowie filmography, I'm just now realizing this, uh, he's in SpongeBob's Atlantis SquarePants from 2007, and he's in SpongeBob's Truth or Square in 2009. So there's David Bowie for you.
2: He did everything. So part of that might have been there was a song of his in it.
1: Yeah, well, with, with SpongeBob SquarePants, it could have been you know just a, a cutaway gag, and who knows? I just I just, of all the things I saw in his filmography that stood out to me, SpongeBob. All right. Alright, speaking of uh that, let's uh let's go to our another song here. This is this is again one of my personal favorites. This is ch changes.
0: Okay. <laughs> Still don't know what I was waiting for, and my time was running wild in the in dead streets, and every time I thought I got it made, it seemed the taste was not so sweet. So I turned myself to face me, but I've never caught a glimpse of how the others must see if they go. I'm a Fast to take that test to change him face the strain to change him. You wanna be a richer man to change him face the strain to change him. It. It's gonna have to be a different man. That may change me, but I can't wait.
1: That is a great example of somebody who um, loves a song, has heard a song for years, a hundred thousand times, never once knew who the artist was. I I would just hear it in commercials, hear it in movies, hear it on the radio. Thought it was spectacular, had no idea until today. As a matter of fact, that it was David Bowie.
0: Are you serious?
1: Square to god. I don't. You honestly like. First of all, I think the first time I may have heard it might have been in the commercial. I might have not have known it was a real song. It was anymore. in the breakfast. Oh, no. Who did you, you... who did you think it was? My my wife just asked me the same question. I don't think I had anyone in mind. I just... I, I Look, different from, from you two, I grew up with parents who who either listened to 50s music or, like, show tunes. I... Thought it was. I guess the first time I heard it, it must have been on the radio when my mother was playing music, and she would. I mean, maybe you know what I'm talking about here, Pat. Having grown up in the tri-state area, uh, WCBS FM. We play your favorite one hundred one point one. That's right, with Cousin Brucey, New York. Remember
3: that? Still going strong, Cousin Brucey.
1: That's right. Well, I I've, I've had to have heard changes at some point on that radio station, so I assume, if you know anything about the music of of that era that they play there, it's like a a million and one bands all singing the same stuff, you know, um, so I just go to some, you know, random 60s group, some, you know, some doo-wop, or, I mean, that's not doo-wop, but some just random 60s music that uh, I never connected, you know, because you got to understand. If I heard it on my parents' radio, I might have liked it, but I never really sought out listening to, you know, to, to who it might have been from. Um, I was much more into forming my own identity and discovering my own music.
2: You know what? So I'm giving you crap. Except I would have bet money and lost big that John Lennon was the background vocal on that song.
1: And who was the background vocal?
2: Not John, <laughs> <laughs>
1: Not John
2: Lennon. Not John Lennon. But that was one of those songs. Like when I would hear it, I actually I think when I got introduced to it, I thought it was a, a collaboration John Lennon and David mm-hmm. Bowie, and I was con- he convinced. He did.
3: He did with him though, didn't he?
2: Not on this song. That was when he. That was um fame. See, I, you could have
1: convinced me that that was a folk song. They hadn't you know, met
2: each other yet. That, at that,
1: this point. that that was like Peter Paul and Mary or something, and I and I would have believed you. That that's my point is like I would have never have guessed that the guy doing fucking Ziggy Stardust, you know, and, and Space Oddity and all this other nonsense was also singing that song. That's what I mean by like he he just really runs the gamut of different styles of music, and, it, and it's pretty amazing. Um, Let's go on to another one, which, again, (laughs) I would find out years later was was by David Bowie. This here is Young Americans. Young Americans Another one that would they, they would play in clubs, but I don't know why. Yeah. <laughs> it's not really like a real dancey tune, but I but I I know I've heard it in clubs before. That's that's the funny one. Got any um, let me let me ask you, Pat and Melissa, you can jump in on this one. So, um, like I just said earlier, um, I read off this list of songs, and Melissa said, "Oh, you picked a lot of the Thin White Duke stuff." What? Um, tell me, what is the what is the Thin White Duke? What was he going for there? What did it all mean? What's it all about? Remember when I said he's like an Aryan dream, yeah,
3: yeah, that was kind of it he was there was like a big cabaret movement in Germany at one point. You might remember people like Taco and uh Klaus Nomi and like Sabowie so looked at that culture and he kind of took a little bit of that added a little bit of the character he played in the uh movie we mentioned before, the Man who felt to Earth. And it kind of nazified it a little bit with always wearing this waistcoat and the slick back hair, and it was supposed to be like a villainous character. Okay, kind of a Bond villain. Yeah, kind of just a, a militant. Like uh, uh, I think he once described it. And I want I want to get this right. He described him as uh, ice masquerading as fire. I think is how he said it. Interesting. I oh, said so
2: that's more than I i it's more than I knew because that was one of those things I never really dug deep into that stuff. So, but interesting trivia. Background vocals on that song: Luther Vandross.
1: Oh boy. Luther yeah, Vandross, that was during a right? time.
3: That was during a time when Bowie thought music had lost uh, the importance of its melodies and harmonies, which is what he fell in love with from, like, the Motown era. So he wanted to bring yeah. that influence back, and that's, he found a young Luther Vandross who hadn't yet gotten his big break.
2: Really? He called it Plastic Soul. I'm, I'm reading it on Wikipedia right now, guys. I'm not that insightful. <laughs> <laughs> Melissa it, <laughs> <the radicals>, everybody. <laughs> on, on other, like, come on, if, there were, if there's a Paul McCartney or John Lennon or George Harrison or Ringo Starr, I could give you, like, the Deep Down Dirty, like, how Wikipedia.
1: Or Common Core. Shut
2: up. <laughs> um, but on some of the things you have to look it up. But yeah, Luther Vandross is on this song.
1: Okay, so I, I love this next song uh, for all the controversy that was created out of it when a certain rapper uh, didn't steal, song, <laughs> as he Supports This, of course, is David Bowie and Queen under pressure. <laughs> Theirs goes
3: ding, 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 ding. and mine goes ding, 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 ding. See, there's that little bit ching. It's not the same.
2: So, my favorite is Mark had to play that for me because I've never heard vanilla ice, like, you know, defending himself. And he said that, and then I was listening to it just now, and I'm like, no, there's that ding, 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 right there, too. (laughs) You you can't convince me in any way, shape, or form that you did not completely and 100% steal
3: that. Well, it it doesn't matter because Mila doesn't get paid
1: for it anyway. If you ever hear the entire interview, he actually goes through a whole thing about how rap is just about stealing other people's music and defends it. He's like... You know, and, the, and then he goes on to say that this is what this was about—money and credit. That if my album had only gone gold, they wouldn't have even gone after me about using that hook. But because I went like, you know, five times platinum, yeah, now they 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 want a piece of the action. And it's so funny because then then if he had just stuck with that he'd be like, yeah, I totally took under pressure. Fuck these people. <laughs> so I would have respected Vanilla Ice for that. But, but then he goes on to say, but I didn't even steal from them. Mine's a little different. No, you asshole. <laughs> well, keep in mind,
3: Ice Ice Baby wasn't even supposed to be the single. It was supposed to be Play That Funky Music White Boy, which he also didn't steal. And <laughs> they thought that that might get him into legal trouble, so they decided to release Ice Ice Baby first.
2: And the
1: rest
2: is history. It drives crazy. Go ahead, It drives me crazy because I can remember being like a kid in the car, and you'd start to hear that the the line, and you're like, oh, it's gonna be under pressure, and then it wasn't, and I would be so devastated.
3: (laughs) But you, you know the thing, the the one great thing, and Gavin, we were talking to Gavin Napier, our good friend earlier today about this, and. How many people can do a duet with Freddie Mercury and not just be completely outshined and and blown away as a vocalist? Because we've talked about Bowie in like concepts and his visions and how he can meld music. This is one where he really gets to stand out as an amazing vocalist without question. And, you know, he starts off in a very low tone to contrast, you know, the bombastic Freddie Mercury's voice and then builds it up and lets himself rip. And he's amazing. And he never really gets enough credit as a vocalist.
2: The isolated vocal tracks on that, which are all over the internet right now, but I actually happened to listen to today, like, that, it just proves that point on how strong of a voice he has. And then the funny thing is, I was just reading, you know, there's all over right now the internet, random, you know, little factoids and tributes to David Bowie. And one of the things they talked about is when he was in school and in choir, he got mediocre marks in choir as a child, which I thought was really funny because, you know, now he's David freaking Bowie.
1: You know that—that's the thing. Um, the teachers are looking for a certain thing, and skipping, <laughs> like skipping. A
0: <laughs> like
1: uh, personal story there. Oh, fuckin', you know. So, so my my poor You're child. You're not gonna tell a story uh, about your dog again, are you?
0: <laughs>
1: not about my dog, you jerk. Uh, but my daughter, as a matter of fact, um, she got. An, she she just transferred from the from the beginning dance class to the more advanced dance class, and the teacher basically said, "You can't even skip. You suck. You have a you have a month to improve, or we're sending you back to remedial dance." And uh, you know, my kid took it on the chin. My wife, however, devastated. Well, you know, everybody. You know, people need sandwiches too, guys.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: All right, this next one is a great song. This is called Heroes. We'll Podcast tonight. I said to Melissa, I said, "You know, I'm such a poor. I'm I'm such a a just. I my preoccupation with uh, with money. Even even this podcast tonight. You know, yes, I wanted to talk about David Bowie and listen to his music, sort of revel in his career. But um, there, there was definitely the ooh, taking advantage of an opportunity while it's hot." to generate clicks for the Rattlers and Broadcasting Network. I won't lie. That was a big part of this tonight. And I walked out of the kitchen, and um, I expect Pat to pass all of this on to our friend Jed so that I can be later called a money-hungry Jew. Um, but I said to Melissa, I said, you know, I, again, starting with the line, I'm such a whore, I, I missed my calling as a movie producer because the, because he would have died this morning, and by lunch, I would have had somebody... Uh, writing a script, a, a biopic about David Bowie, set for release, set for release December twenty fifth, twenty sixteen. Like immediately taking advantage of this man, this poor man's death. I'd have been like, yes, now is the time. Strike while the iron's hot. We need a David Bowie biopic, and I said that only because like, oh, okay, David Bowie. He's in the news now. It's yeah, now it's the opportunity to, to do all these things. Um, this was just sort of a timing thing. And I said it without ever knowing, does David Bowie even have any, like, uh, dramatic uh, controversies in his life that would make for an interesting movie?
2: He had to change his name from Davy Jones to David Bowie. Oh,
1: dear. <laughs> well, you could stretch that into a movie. Like, I mean, I know... Like, he,
2: like, like, happy. Yeah, I know he got in trouble in the 60s and 70s because he made some comments about... Um, his sexuality, and, like, you know, at one point he made a comment about, oh, I'm gay, you know, he, he very much was, he probably was bisexual, but he made comments about being gay, you know, with, always with women, and, I mean, that would be probably the weirdest thing, but, you know, it, I, truth be told, for the last 23 years or so, he's been married to Iman and living a quiet, you know, quiet life.
1: And that's the, that's the other point that I wanted to make is, he really stands out and to me. Um, you know, somebody who got popular in the '60s and '70s, um, who went through an entire, you know, four-decade career, and didn't have a major controversy. I mean, I'm going to reference Axl Rose again. He didn't set off a riot in Canada. Um, you know,
2: he got busted for pot. But yeah. everybody did. I mean, Paul
1: McCartney got busted. Yeah, who, didn't, who doesn't get busted for pot? Um like you can't point to David Bowie and be like, oh, he went through this, I'm a horrible human being. Because he, I think about like Johnny Cash, you know, who had a biopic made of him. I think it was, no, like, it was much more similar to Brian Wilson. Um and it's just like, yeah, I, I don't know if there'd be anything even dramatic to, to put on screen that would be of interest to people. You know, what about like, he, he bottled pot- his <laughs> own urine. <laughs> he bottled his own urine. So that the witches couldn't get it. <laughs> All what are you talking about, sir?
3: At one point, when he was really in a terrible state of addiction to multiple things, particularly cocaine, he literally went batshit and would leave himself in his house for weeks at a time, not leave, bottle his urine so that it couldn't be kept by witches to do voodoo or what have you on him, uh, and lived on a diet that consisted of milk and green peppers. At what point in his career was this? Actually, one of his more creative and successful points in the late 70s, right after he did the recordings of what's come to be known as the Berlin Trilogy, which we just listened to Heroes, which is one of the three albums that makes it up, along with Lowe and, um, I forget the third album, but that's during that period.
1: Okay. I think if someone takes my idea, which the radicalism Broadcasting Network is also, you know, as always... We 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 have an uncredited consulting role in Hollywood. People uh, unpaid interns listen to our programs, take our ideas, and do things with them. This this happens. You've never listened to our show before. I guarantee you. Now that I've said it, someone out there is like, "Holy shit, he's right!" And was now going to work on a David Bowie biopic. It might be on BH one but they're doing it. I swear to you. Um, but it'd probably be it would it would probably be bad. It would probably be you know the early struggles. The sixties and seventies stuff, and it would end in the eighties, uh, because I don't think there's anything much to, to other than he became a you know a multi-platinum uh, musician. Does it does it end with him meeting him on?
2: That's what I was just thinking because as he was talking and he was like, "Oh, it runs, when you were talking about the stuff with the height of the addiction in the late seventies, I was like, oh, well, that's right before he divorced Angie.' So I actually could see that going that way." Actually, this sounds more like a Lifetime movie.
1: In what way is this a Lifetime movie? Well,
2: because it's like that struggle and, and the craziness and then getting out of a bad relationship and finding the good one.
1: Bad relationship? Tell me about that. Angie.
2: Him and Angie? Yeah. Oh, well, he was married to Angie. Who Angie was, who? I don't know what her Angie name Bowie. Is. Yeah, Angie Bowie. Angie Bowie. She was an actress. He, um, actress, model. She's just as crazy, and in fact, she's currently living in the big brother house in england and there was stuff all over the news about how they actually did not tell her they had to wait to tell her because they were completely cut off uh, but she's kind of an insane person okay um and she was a lot of it was a big catalyst for a lot of the issues that he had
1: okay did not know that
2: his ex-wife was crazy huh.
1: I don't know how much of his musician, uh, how much, how much of uh, his songs came out of the angst that was uh, provided by that relationship. Yeah, I
0: don't
1: know. Here's another one uh, that I didn't realize was by David Bowie originally, because the first time I heard it, I heard it by Nirvana. This is the man who sold the world.
2: Nirvana covered this.
1: Nirvana sucked.
2: <laughs> I
0: was too young for so times, for so We passed up on the stairs We spoke of once and when Although I was not So
1: uh I accidentally stumbled upon the Nirvana unplugged performance on MTV when uh when they first ran their initial series of unplugged performances. I happened to be at a friend's house and I was flipping through the TV and I happened to see Kurt Cobain in the rocking chair playing an acoustic guitar. And, uh, yeah, they covered this, and, uh, gosh, the, what's the other one they did? Another um, song by, another more talented band. <laughs> yes, another song by a more talented band. I like Nirvana, shut up. But, um, so yeah, I heard, they they played the man who sold the world, I had no idea who it was by, I thought it could, it could have been an original Nirvana song for all I knew. Uh, would later find out that it was actually a David Bowie original
2: a lot of people that covered him. I mean, heroes got covered by The Wallflowers, and I actually really like that version.
1: There's tons of punk covers of Ziggy Stardust. Um, There's probably some covers of Space Oddity out there. Uh, That might be one of Young Americans. Ripped off all the time
3: by rappers, but, you know, rappers don't steal anything.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No. Uh, Any thoughts here, Pat, on The Man who Sold the World? Uh, it's it's it's
3: an interesting song. I was actually going to go back to the last song we played, The Heroes, cuz it's, it's probably one of your more favorite songs I would think Mark that he's done. Heroes, absolutely. Okay, well, uh, and no surprise then. Do you know who happened to play guitar on that song? Who played guitar on Heroes? Robert Fripp, who is the lead guitarist of
1: a band called King Crimson. That would make sense. <laughs> um I know of King Crimson, I've heard King Crimson before, uh, a progressive rock band, good stuff. So uh, we're winding down here, we've got one more track to play, and then we're going to do a bit of an outro after uh, our final conclusions here. Um, you know, we've been, ta- we've been talking about this and that, you know, trying to keep the stuff relative to the songs that we're playing. Well, so you got any good stories, anything else you want to talk about, you know, Burning Desire's? Anything you want to know, any uh David Bowie related material you want to share with the world?
2: Um actually a really funny thing that popped out for me is um so in ninety seven he turned fifty and this was kind of at the height of my um introduction and and you know fascination, obsession with David Bowie, and they were doing this pay per view concert in New York and I wanted to see it so bad and One of my parents' friends, um, who was kind of the person who led me towards the David Bowie path after being this, you know, a big Beatles person for for many, 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 many years, was like, oh, just get him drunk and tell him you want it and he'll buy you anything you want. And so I can remember, you know, I can remember my dad pretending to be, you know, overly indulgent in cocktails um, one night and me going and asking him if I can order it and him going... Yeah, sure, fine, whatever. Um, And I can remember ordering it. I can remember watching it and videotaping it, and I can remember over and over and over over and over again watching that concert. And, um, you know, you were talking about Afraid of Americans at the beginning of the show, and it was so funny because I am not a Nine Inch Nails Trent Reznor industrial person at all. And I can remember trying so hard to really like this this industrial stuff he was doing on the show but secretly wishing, like, oh, why can't I hear... Some of the older stuff, too. Um, but I no, do. Hang on. Funny
1: side story about that. One of our first dates was uh, going to see Ministry Live in St. Petersburg.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and she married me anyway, folks. <laughs> How about you, Pat? Any burning desires? Any stories left unsaid? Anything you want to share with the world, baby Bowie related So my maternal grandfather
3: was probably about as hard a man as there was. Um, you know, veteran of two wars, was an iron worker, uh, immigrated from Canada to the United States when he was 15 after he had already worked for three years in a slaughterhouse. So he, he was Canadian? not...
1: Wait a you're Canadian? I, I need to talk about this. You're Canadian? Has this not been established already? No. I, was I'm, I'm pretty sure this is covered ground. No, I, not on one of my shows. I, I, I oh, didn't well. realize it's for a Canuck. All right. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm a hoser. Anyway, um, but you know, so probably
3: about the least likely fan of David Bowie that there would be. Um, although <laughs> once my mom did catch him singing Blondie's Heart of Glass after he came home from the bar one night. But
0: no. oh, that's <laughs> great.
3: <laughs> yeah, uh, I but, make, but anyway, I want to make a movie
1: like my grandfather.
3: <laughs> yeah, mom, mom and her her best friend at the time, huge David Bowie fans when he was doing his Ziggy Stardust stuff. And they had this one guy friend who was kind of thin and always was, you know, hanging out with them all the time. And eventually, after much coercion, he allowed them to turn him into Ziggy Stardust. And Mm -hmm. they cut his hair and used food coloring to try to dye it that orange-red color that he had into that mullet. They painted the lightning bolt over his face and made him up very, very pale with, uh, you know, makeup. And put him into their clothes to make him have that androgynous, you know, effeminate appearance. Um, as soon as he was finished, my grandfather came home from work. And just looked at him for a good, hard minute. And then, as he would do in his thick Canadian accent, Darty was my mom's name is Dorothy, and that's how he pronounced it. Darty, what the fuck is this? <laughs> And at that point, nobody said a word, and everybody just kind of either left or walked into another room.
1: Right. <laughs>
0: That's
1: funny. Um. All right. Before we play this last song here, I want to get your impressions. Um. It's 2016 now. Music is. Uh, music has become a very dead, dead. I was going to say compartmentalized thing. So, by virtue of the internet, uh, um, you have the long tail uh, of of musical discovery, where it isn't quite the the social gathering that it used to be. Uh, You know, you don't have uh, in many ways uh, that artist that sort of captures the imagination of the whole world. You have niche markets. Um, People come out now, and, and again, I don't. You know with Spotify and YouTube, I don't have to listen to anything. you know there's no common radio moment anymore um we all We all can kind of go to our own little space in the internet and listen to exactly what we want to listen to. so with that being said, do you think the David Bowie five, ten, fifteen, twenty years from now still has a lasting effect on the music industry uh on, on the, you know the public at large? The musicians, or do you think his influence will fade into uh, obscurity as the the long tail continues to uh, continues to move? You know, continues to grow.
2: I think that David Bowie is one of those people that has influenced so many corners of the music industry that I think that it's going to take generations for his influence and his impact to dwindle. I, I think that you know, I think everyone kind of, when they really dig down to what, is, what inspired me, what influenced me, a lot of the the music we're listening to now still is tracing it back to that. Um, and I think that as long as there are people still interested in creating new and different music, they're always going to find him. And I do think he is going to be around for a while.
3: Pat? I would agree. I think he's intertwined himself in so many different genres of music and is so influential over so many years that it, there may never be a point where there's not a piece of David Bowie and at least some type of popular music at the time, whatever year it may be. Um, you know, you can call it older or you can call it classic. The difference between old and classic is classic is always good. And David Bowie's classic. And he's just always going to be that way. If his his popularity couldn't die down, you know, after its zenith, and he kept finding ways to reassert himself into the top 40 of music through four different decades. There's, there's just something that's unstoppable about him, the same way it is about the Beatles or the Rolling Stones or James Brown or, or anybody, where their influence is never going to go away. And I think, honestly, the, the strongest. Part of that is because music is so overproduced and computerized that it lacks heart and it lacks soul. And I think that's why you're seeing a lot of classic music, you know, reach new levels of popularity now in TV commercials and things like that because it, it has a heart and a soul. And Bowie always put everything he had into, you know, at least at least his non really bad addictive years. He always put everything he had into his music, and I think that's something that you don't get anymore. And that's why he's always going to be relevant.
1: I couldn't think of a better introduction to our next and last song of the night. This is Rebel Rebel. David Bowie songs of all time. And that, folks, is the end of our tribute to the life of David Bowie. Uh, He will be missed, but he will always be remembered. I think both of my panel members here both agree on that, that whether people know it or not, they will be channeling David Bowie for decades to come. And I know for myself, I've come to have a greater appreciation of his career and what he brought to the world of music by going over some of his greatest hits tonight, and, uh, and talking about them with uh, friends and family here. So
2: I hope you've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it. Melissa, did you enjoy being on the podcast tonight? I, I did, actually. This was not one where I hated you. I wish that you hadn't gotten me involved. <laughs> <laughs> I am not a podcaster. This, I never feel like I have anything of value or importance to say. I am just a lowly school teacher. Yeah, meanwhile,
1: she, like, dominates the whole podcast. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> this woman is currently on one of the highest, uh, listen to podcasts on the uh, entire really Scotch network. In the history of the radio and broadcasting network, our review of the baby metal self titled album remains one of the most downloaded uh, shows that we've ever done, and you're on it. So shut up. I hate this country.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's of course Pat Bowen. Pat, did you have a good time tonight?
3: I had a great time talking about one of the real musical geniuses of all time. Well, it was a pleasure
1: to have mm-hmm. you on, Pat
3: so uh, a lot of people listening to the show obviously know that we're we're involved in the wrestling community to a point so I purchased the uh, DVD released by WWE Owen Hart of Gold which chronicles the life and career of Owen Hart I uh, just want to remind everybody that this particular production is in no way affiliated with owen's family uh his late what, his his widow Martha, and his two children, Athena and Oge they are receiving no money out of this, so I encourage you that if you do buy the d v d make an equal or greater contribution to the Owen Hart Foundation, which was started by his wife Martha. Very good.
1: do I have fun? Yes, yeah. Don't
2: get an education. <laughs> Don't
0: drive your teachers crazy.
1: If you if you've got kids in the in in the Tampa Bay area and your and your elementary school sucks. <laughs> what what school should they send their children to? <laughs> I'm not saying that on air. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Melissa, if people want to find you on Twitter or Facebook, how do they find you? They don't. Alright.
2: I'm a teacher. I have to keep all this stuff private. I can't have people
1: digging in. Alright, do you have any nude photographs online? <laughs> do you is there anything you'd like to promote? Do you wanna
2: you, promote you. Yeah,
1: uh, promote me. I am promoting
2: me. Maybe one of these days it'll like, you know, earn us some money.
1: I think that's all yeah, so Radoligend Broadcasting Network on Facebook. Uh if you want to hit me up on Twitter, it's just uh, at Mark Rattelidge, M-A-R-K-R-E-D-U-L-I-C-H. And maybe someday I too will appear on a Casual Heroes podcast, but don't count on it. So, for Mr. Pat Mullen, the pugilistic punchy puncher of New Jersey, and for my wife, the master of all things education and some things David Bowie, this has been a David Bowie tribute brought to you by the Rattelidge Broadcasting Network. And I am your host, the Amanda Reporter. And frankly, I'm mortified. Be well, be safe, and be afraid of Americans. <laughs>
0: They don't even just pretend I'm afraid of America I'm afraid of the world I'm afraid I can't help it I'm afraid I can't I'm afraid of America I'm afraid of the world I'm afraid I can't help it I'm afraid I can't, I'm afraid of Americans.